A few weeks ago, I took my first footsteps in East Africa. I landed in Addis at dawn, found my way to the domestic terminal, bought a ticket, and by afternoon, I was in a minibus, winding my way up through the hills towards the walled city of Harar. Next morning, I woke to the call to prayer. I dressed, stepped out of my hotel into the dark street, hailed a motor rickshaw, and gestured my way to the central bus station. My destination was somewhere close by. The station was already a hive of activity. I sat on the bench in front of a woman who was preparing food over a fire. There must have been ten of us. The woman looked at me and I pointed at the teapot. Soon I was cradling a cup of hot sweet tea. I watched as she prepared food. When my neighbours had theirs, I pointed at what I liked and before long I was digging into a bowl of spicy fried eggs and flatbread, trying to be oblivious to the attention I was getting. I spoke to the man on my left. Where's the entrance to the walled city? Well, I said the name of the gate with rising intonation. He looked at me blankly. I showed him my map, rotating it as I watched his face for signs that he had locked in on something. I guess he didn't recognise what it was. I turned to my right. I mined walls and entrances. Nothing but laughter. Then someone got it. He pointed. Sure enough, fifty metres down the hill on the left was an opening. Once there I saw the arch. I passed through the wall into another world. For the next five hours I wandered the maze of pathways. There was a tiny mosque around every corner. Between were houses with high walls, each a different colour. Back in 1854, Richard Burton, explorer, ethnographer, soldier and spy, was the first European to set foot inside the holy city of Harar, disguised as an Arab merchant. As an infidel, Burton was lucky to leave with his life. During the ten days he was there, Burton compiled a grammar of the Harari language to appear in the appendix of his travelogue. 164 years later, here I was, on a pilgrimage to the site of Burton's linguistic feat, hoping something might rub off on me. At 9am I met my guide, Lishan, and he took me to the official sites and filled my head with stories. But more interesting for me were his interactions with children who'd come in from the surrounding villages, driving donkeys carrying firewood. Lishan talked and laughed with the children. Meanwhile, I wondered how I could get a photo. Lishan turned to me and asked, Where's your camera? And so I brought it out. But all the kids turned away and it became a game to snap a photo when they didn't notice. And it didn't feel right. In the afternoon, Lishan drove me out of town on a road which goes to the border with Somalia. As we wound our way along a rough track, kids ran down to our car yelling, Nana Nana, sweets. Some approached with sticks and rocks to extract a bribe, but Lishan slammed on the brakes, pulled out his phone, photographed them and called the police. The kids fled. Lishan got their names later and reported them. We climbed up to a hilltop high above the plain and entered a village of stone houses. Koremi is home to descendants of a 12th century Arab migration who speak Oromo. We wandered around, went inside a house, shared some sweet tea and chewed chart leaves, the local stimulant. Yet all the time I was focused on opportunities for photography. As we drove away, I wondered how the villagers feel about photography. That night I read a section in the travel guide, Make It Meaningful, where it said, Far too many people treat the village visits like human safaris. But I also came away wondering what Lishan had been speaking about to the locals the whole time I was there. Perhaps something to do with the delinquent kids on the road, but it dawned on me that I learnt nothing from the visit. I made no connection. So I decided to try something different the next weekend. 
After a week of teaching back in Addis, I flew to the south. I caught a crowded minibus two hours further towards the Kenyan border. By nightfall, I was in Konso, a UNESCO World Heritage Site. My hotel had just one guest. I was given a top-floor room looking out over the town's main intersection. Beneath me at street level was a bank. Outside was a guard with a machine gun. He felt like my private security. Electricity was patchy and there was no hot water. I sprayed insect repellent on myself and left the doors open to the hallway and balcony to catch any breath of wind and went to bed. Over the next three days, with three guides, three villages and three languages from three different families, I started to develop a method. On the eve of each trip, as my next guide and I sat in a bar and negotiated places and prices, I recorded several phrases on my phone. Overnight I listened again. The next morning on our way to the village I practiced with my guide. After a while he said, you pronounce them just right. On one morning, like all the others, we walked into a village and were met by a throng of children asking for a photo. I didn't get out the camera this time. Instead I just opened my mouth and out came greetings and introductions in the local Nilotic, Omotic or Cushitic language. They were just nonsense syllables to me. Did I say them correctly or in the right order? It didn't really matter. Some teenagers pointed at me and laughed. I went directly to them, held out my hand, and they greeted me, suddenly shy. I embarrassed them for embarrassing me, but it was all light-hearted fun. I started to take in the surroundings. I saw two old men sitting on a low bench in the shade. I pushed through the kids and made my way over to them. I laughed at myself, playing at being outgoing. Again, I spoke in the language. How are you? My name is Stephen. I'm from Australia. What's your name? May I sit? Thank you. The two men nodded. I sat. My guide, now my interpreter, took a spot on the other side. Through my interpreter, I asked the man the name of the village. Then I set it back. The men nodded. We started to talk. After a while, one asked, How many children? I said, Three. The man looked at my interpreter doubtfully. He looked at me to confirm. Yes, three. He nodded back at the man who frowned. I asked, How many children? The man said, Thirteen. Four wives. I held up a finger. One wife, I said. The man said sorry and shook his head in disbelief. My interpreter and I burst out laughing and the children mobbing us joined in the laughter. After we regained our composure, I said to my interpreter, Yes, you're my guide, but let's ask this man to be our guide for now. He nodded and we set off into the village. We picked our way along narrow paths between fenced compounds. From time to time the man stopped for us to take it in. We shooed off the children in our wake. I got out my phone to refresh my memory of the phrases. We greeted people coming the other way. We worked our way through the cluster of thatched houses, each one fenced and containing livestock. They were arranged in a tight circle around an uninhabited peak, surrounded by hillsides skirted with ancient stone terraces. In the middle of town we came across tree trunks bundled together in an upright position and reaching 15 metres high. I learnt that each eight years or so they strap on another trunk, taller than the rest, People measure their age by the number of trunk-adding ceremonies they've witnessed. Close by was a boulder. I learnt that a man had to lift it up to his shoulder in order to be considered marriageable. My interpreter, the man, and our whole entourage looked at me expectantly. I lifted the boulder to my waist, but no further. It fell to the ground. The man took in the scene. I didn't deserve a wife, let alone children. It all added up. He shook his head. 
We saw burial plots in which a local hero was recognised by a wooden effigy, generously endowed, flanked by his wife and children, and effigies of vanquished enemies with severed endowments and their widows. There was much to clarify, and I reminded my guide to put my questions to the man rather than answering them himself. He nodded. He got it. Later he told me, people said they really liked this visitor. Our tour ended in that crowded place where the road arrived into the town. This time I asked for photos. Unlike my hurrah photos, these were full of smiles and laughter. People seemed proud. The most obvious technology was my phone pressed to my ear while we walked. Here are some of those recordings made in the bar on the eve of our visit. These ones come from Dorze, a language with 10,000 first language speakers. Haimala Lo'o. You say it? Haimala Lo'o. And this is, how are you? Yes. I'm fine. I'm fine. Tasunsa Stephen. Tasunsa One Stephen? Tasunsa One Stephen. My name is Stephen. Ane Nudere, Australia. Ane Nudere, Australia. I'm from Australia. Nesunsa One. Nesunsa One. What is your name? Ane Uta. Uta. Ane Uta. Can I sit down? Tosimo. Thank you. Tosimo. Yeah.